You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On our Brexit special podcast today, Dennis Staunton, a London correspondent, on the significance of the court ruling that will force Prime Minister Theresa May to consult the Commons before she launches the Brexit process. And before the court ruling, Mark Hennessy talked to former senior BBC journalist who became Director of Communications for British Prime Minister David Cameron, Craig Oliver, about the mood in the Tory party and Britain as the realities of Brexit challenges begin to dawn. After leaving Downing Street, Oliver wrote an account of the referendum campaign, Unleashing Demons, the inside story of Brexit, in which, among other things, he spoke of Cameron's disappointment at Theresa May's equivocation on Brexit. Dennis, the British courts have struck a major blow for parliamentarians' rights in limiting what is known as the royal prerogative. What does it all mean? What it means is that Theresa May can't uh, trigger Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, which starts formal Uh, talks for Britain to leave the EU without getting a vote in Parliament to authorise it. The royal prerogative uh, is a slightly misleading term, which refers to a set of executive powers, which uh, were, they used to be powers vested in the monarch, and now it's the executive, the prime minister and the government. The court decided that uh, because Britain was brought into the European Union with the Parliamentary Act, the 1972 European Communities Act, that actually uh, it's uh, throughout centuries it's been established law in Britain that you can only revoke an act of parliament by another act of parliament. And part of this uh, reasoning is to do with the fact that joining the European Union conferred rights, extra rights on, uh, on UK citizens. And what the court said was that actually only parliament can take those rights away. In, in some cases, um, the, the, the government has the right, particularly with, with treaties and with uh, trade deals, it has the right to pass uh, the, these uh, agreements without asking MPs about them. That's right. Uh, generally speaking, the government can conclude or withdraw from international treaties uh, without going to Parliament for permission. But what the court said was that actually uh, the, uh, the the MPs who voted in 1972 to join the European Union knew at the time that joining the common market, as it was at the time, would mean that there would be an effect on domestic law. So it wasn't a purely international treaty. It was also something that was going to to affect domestic law. And so what they were saying really was that uh, they knew that, that was the decision, whereas what the government was saying was that actually when they voted for the 1972 European Communities Act, that they thought that this was an international treaty that the government could just withdraw from at any time. So that was where the disagreement was. And the judges came down on the side of saying that no parliament knew what it was doing and that they knew that joining the European Union wasn't just international, but it also had domestic ramifications. And this is going to create enormous political problems problems for for Theresa May. She wasn't really very keen to get MPs involved because although the Tories have a majority, it's a majority that is uh, extremely uh, narrow and it's divided about what sort of Brexit it wants to see. That's right. I mean, on the face of it, uh, you'd have thought that uh, if you look at Parliament, two thirds of MPs, uh, including more than half of the Conservative MPs, wanted to stay in the European Union uh, before the referendum. But since then, uh, what they've all noticed is that the political reality has changed. And so, for example, 70% of constituencies in England voted to leave the European Union. And so Conservatives and indeed Labour MPs who represent those constituencies that voted to leave would be very reluctant to just vote against 
uh, the will of the people as expressed in the referendum. So it's, on, it's, it's highly unlikely that MPs would try to actually simply block the triggering of Article 50. What's much more likely is what you uh, suggested, which is that they would try to attach conditions to it. And so they try to uh, influence the government's negotiating mandate and suggest that, for example, that the government should seek to remain within the European single market or within the customs union. And uh, and that's where it, the, the thing all becomes messy because uh, if, for example, uh, Theresa May were to introduce a motion into Parliament, simply a yes or no motion, will you allow me to trigger Article 50, she would probably win. But that would also be potentially open to legal challenge at some stage in the future. So the safer way to do it would be to open, to introduce primary legislation, but primary legislation, which is an act of Parliament, that for that, uh, you know, any of these bills that are introduced in Parliament, they can be amended. And there are various people in all parties who would like to amend any kind of legislation like that to, to in some way inhibit what Theresa May and her negotiating team could seek to get out of any deal from the European Union. And that's where it becomes complicated. And there's a very clear and substantial majority for what has been called a soft Brexit. Well... There may be. I'm not sure actually how clear or how substantial it is, because one of the things that you've noticed in the last uh, couple of months since the referendum is that a lot of the most stridently pro-Brexit and really rather hard Brexit lines have come from former Remainers. And so, for example, the most notorious speech at the Conservative Party conference uh, came from the Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, who backed Remain. But she was the one who said that we need to start drawing up a list uh, or at least some kind of a, an audit of how many foreign workers each company has and was promoting a very hard line on controlling immigration after Brexit. And you also, if you speak to Labour MPs, you'll find that a lot of them will say if it comes to a choice between membership of the single market and controlling immigration, they would feel they would have to come down on the side of controlling immigration. So I'm not sure that you necessarily would have a majority in Parliament for a soft Brexit as it's known. So in other words, that you may not get a majority in Parliament saying they've got to insist on staying in the European single market, even if that means that they must continue to respect the free movement of people from the European Union. I think that uh, the politics is actually possibly pushing uh, the MPs and the political system towards something more like a hard Brexit than a soft Brexit. Thank you very much, Dennis. And next we'll hear Mark Hennessy talking to Craig Oliver. You're listening to the Irish Times. Craig Oliver, thank you for joining us. Five months on, or nearly five months on, from the referendum, where do you think the UK now stands, given the, the, the sense have somewhat settled, uh, we're a little bit better informed, but not much on how the UK government is going to play this over coming years? Well, what's your sense of both British politics and of society and the kind of effects that have been left by the tremors of the referendum? Well, those are, those are big questions. Um, I think that in terms of uh, what's going to happen with Brexit, there's still a huge amount of uncertainty. We know that the government is going to trigger Article 50 in the first quarter of next year, which means that the divorce process from the European Union, which takes two years, that's the starting gun being fired on it. I think what's happening with the British government at the moment is that they're trying to limit the amount of information that they put out there, because I think they feel that it's almost a bit like a game of poker, that you reveal your hand too early. 
um, and you obviously lose out. So I think that there's a huge amount of uncertainty, partly because they're deliberately uh, covering their heart hand, and partly because I think nobody's been in this situation before, and nobody really knows where it's going to land. Mm. Were you surprised by the way in which the Prime Minister particularly and others handled the Tory conference? Um, I think that what you've got to look at in in British politics at the moment, Theresa May believes that she doesn't really have a strong opposition in any meaningful sense. Jeremy Corbyn is very popular with a very um, significant niche in British politics, um, but it is not the kind of um, coalition that's going to build a general election victory. So I think that she feels that her real concerns are how does she handle her own party? How does she handle the right-wing press that campaigned for Brexit? And I think that she is wanted in that conference speech to signal to them that Britain really is leaving the EU. It will almost certainly leave the single market and the European Court of Justice. And she wanted a signal to them that she wasn't going to try and back away from that. Bearing in mind that she did have messages to send to her own people, the earthquake that that caused uh, politically, both in terms of the impact on the on Sterling's value, uh, business opinion was uh, deeply troubled by the way in which she handled it. She's trying to uh, talk to a lot of audiences in a world where it is very, very difficult now to, to, to send different messages to different groups of people. At some point, she's already had those difficulties, and, that, and those difficulties are going to get worse. I take it you, you wouldn't disagree with that point. I think that the situation she's finding and discovering is that you cannot have your cake and eat it. There is a sort of irresistible force of people who want the so-called hard Brexit and the immovable object of those people who feel we've got to have as much access to the single market as possible. And reconciling those two things is nigh on impossible. Um, what I think she's trying to do is say... We Britain voted to leave the EU. That is going to happen, and I'm going to try and make as good a fist of it as possible. Um, but there are lots of people who are pretty irreconcilable on this, and at come the end of this process, there's going to be some people who feel deeply unhappy whatever the decision that is taken. And in, uh, given your past as a political strategist inside Number 10, I mean, what's your verdict on the quality of handling? I mean, I think it's, it's, she's doing quite well. I think it's perfectly sensible in the, to not try and reveal too much of your hand too early. Um, I think she's in an extremely difficult situation. Um, and so far, it's going, it's going okay. What's happening in British politics at the moment is the tide is essentially going with her. She's got supporters in the press. She's got, um, you know, the benefit of the doubt of being a new government and not having been in this situation before and not too much having happened. The proof of the pudding, I suspect, will be when we've got into the negotiations on leaving the EU. And I suspect next year's Conservative Party conference is likely to be a more interesting and difficult event for her than this one. And do you get any sense of there being any second thoughts on the part of a, a, a material section of the British population on foot of the result? I think that, that most people have not engaged in the real detail of it, and it's not hugely evident yet how it will impact on people and what effect it will have. And I think it's just going to take some time before there is any sort of movement in opinion. Um, there was a manufacturing survey the other day where they said that 5% of people felt that a material damage to manufacturing in the UK would be a price worth paying for leaving the EU. Little straws in the wind like that show that people are concerned that the economy might be damaged in some way. Um, but it's too soon to tell what impact that will have on politics. 
Well, one of the the trophies uh, during the campaign was the Sunderland uh, plant, the Nissan plant, and there were lots of talks that if uh, people voted no, that Sunderland would go. And now we find that Nissan has done a deal uh, with the British government, which is going to mean that there will be two new models uh, built there. Uh, Having been inside number 10, how are those kind of deals put together? And what do you think the letter that will never be published actually says in terms of the comfort that it offers to Nissan management? Well, what I think is interesting here is that what the government is suggesting is that they want to do the deal sector by sector. Now, it seems unlikely that each sector is going to get everything it wants and be entirely satisfied. Now, Nissan was at the front of the queue because it had pressing demands in terms of what it was going to choose to do um, in terms of building these new models. There's also the pharmaceuticals industry, the aerospace industry, agriculture, financial services. Now, the ability to do deals that satisfy all of them, that do not cost the British taxpayer large sums of money, seems like a big task. But it's not going to be uh, uh, practical that they will be able to do a deal that will uh, keep very large sections of uh, industry happy because by the very nature of the beast, there are going to be some restrictions on trade. There are going to be issues with, uh, with, with not having free trade agreements in place with other countries. All of this takes time. There will be what you know, years of uncertainty. What on is that, that if you buy into the single market or get full access to the single market, that you have to take certain rules and regulations. So if you are opting out of freedom of movement and if you're opting out of the European Court of Justice, most people say, well, you will have to pay a very heavy price in terms of your access to the market. There is a third option which is being floated at the moment, which is a substantial payment by the British government into the EU. So leave the European Court of Justice, leave the single market, but make significant payments into the EU, which then allow access for your industries. Now, given that the campaign that the Leave um, ran was essentially, we pay £350 million a week into the EU, which is not true, by the way. Mm. And as a result of not paying that money in, we will be able to fund the NHS. It's going to be quite a tricky sell if that is the route that they tend to, they go down, paying more money into the EU. David Cameron is alleged to have sent a text to Boris after his um, leadership campaigns, a leadership campaign came a cropper where he said, you should have stuck with me, mate, which kind of indicates the, the level of personal resentment. When you're looking at people who are now in power, do you expect to look two, three years down the road and see these people getting their comeuppance, as it were? I think it's impossible to tell. I think the, that, that that text was sent on a day where something really extraordinary happened in British politics, which is Michael Gove, who had, until that stage, been the campaign manager for Boris Johnson on the morning that Boris Johnson was going to announce that he was officially a candidate, withdrew his support and then announced he was going to be prime minister. Now, I think that Boris and the David Cameron had a kind of ribbing relationship where, you know, there was a kind of bitter irony and humor in that. Um, the reality of politics is that um, people find themselves in successful positions when some people feel that they perhaps shouldn't be. That's just the nature of the beast. And, you know, I suspect Boris Johnson will still be a significant player in British politics in the next few years.
But you could equally say that it was a reflection of the rather visceral hatreds that the campaign has uh, generated. I mean, if you're in your own book, you are uh, personally extremely critical on a couple of points uh, about Michael Gove, where you talked at one point that he had put forward an interesting cocktail that was a blend of brilliance and poison. Yeah. And my concern about the Leave campaign was, I think, in the final six weeks, it was based on four things that were simply untrue, that we pay £350 million a week into the EU and it could fund the NHS. Not true. Turkey is going to join the EU and as a result, millions of people are going to flood into the UK. Not true. There is going to be a European army and Britain will be forced to join it. Not true. And finally, that all of our significant laws in this country are formed in Strasbourg or Brussels. Not true. And I was concerned that somebody who had stood on a manifesto with David Cameron as part of this government was prepared to attack this government and a lot of the policies that this government had that didn't even have much to do with Europe, for example, like the National Living Wage or the National Health Service, or indeed to question David Cameron's integrity, um, saying that he was corroding public trust. I found all of those things pushing it way too far beyond the pale. And I think having a campaign that was as misleading as the one that he chaired was a deep concern. On that point, if you were to turn the clock back a year and you were to sit in Downing Street in the armchairs with David Cameron and you were to plan the strategy around this campaign again, what would you do differently? Well, look, there are lots of things along the line, but I think there were two major issues that I think that we got wrong. One, James Carville said in the first Bill Clinton presidential campaign, it's the economy stupid. And that's kind of the closest thing to an iron law in politics, not just in the UK, but across the world. If you're trying to get elected, focusing on the economy and the risk to the economy if your opponents are successful is a tried and tested technique that works very well. In this case, we focused almost exclusively on economic risk. And I think that people just didn't accept that. And we probably did too much on that. The second thing is that there was an assumption amongst pollsters and people who modeled these things that people who are deeply disaffected and disengaged and hadn't voted in politics in 2015 and probably for many elections before that weren't going to turn out. And they actually did, and in huge numbers, to vote for leave. And I don't think that we began to focus on or understand them enough. To an extent, that that explains what you shouldn't do again. or It doesn't tend to explain what how you would have fought the campaign. What messages would you have put forward that would have been that would have dealt with those concerns in a positive fashion? Well, I think it was it would have been more actually engaging on the territory that they felt. They, for example, those three million people who hadn't voted for a long time felt that you know politics wasn't working for them, that they were disengaged, disillusioned, and that they'd been ignored. And I think finding ways to demonstrate that you didn't, that that wasn't the case, and in fact that they would be the people that would be most harmed if we left the EU, and here are reasons why the EU works for you. I think another big problem that we had was that in the UK, we had had 40 years of the EU having very negative publicity and nobody really doing positive PR for it. To have to do a change that around in a few short months was an incredibly difficult task. We were used to the EU being trying to ban people's prawn cocktail crisp, bendy bananas, um, crazy ideas about um, uniting people. Um, and that people just didn't like that in the UK. And that had been 
gone on for 40 years, and we struggled against that as well. But there was never going to be any way around that. I mean, those people in the tabloids and the, particularly the mid-market papers like the Mail were, were never going to be capable of being brought on side. Or do you think that there was a way in which uh, Number 10 could have negotiated agreements with them to at least neutralise them to some extent? I think that, I mean, that's great unknowable. I mean, the reality is that we felt we had an incredibly powerful case and it was very, um, you know, compelling case. But we, in the end, found that we were just swimming against the tide with one arm tied behind our backs. You know, we had, in 1975, every single national newspaper daily and Sunday in the UK was pro-us remaining in the EU. This time, we had massive campaigns from the most significant newspapers in this country going on day after day. We also had a relentless... Um, go uh, people concerned about immigration and people in this country felt that they had been misled about immigration by successive governments over the years. So when a lot of countries joined the EU and um, Tony Blair's government told people this will probably result in the net gain of 40,000 people to the British population, in fact, millions of people came to this country Mm. and people felt that their communities had changed, that there was pressure on local wages, um, that they had not been told that this was going to happen and that they'd been misled about it. And that was a very profound and visceral um, reaction. And broadly, an accurate judgment on the part of the people making it. I mean, it was striking listening over the years to people in politics and business saying that immigration hadn't dampened down wage demand. It clearly did at a certain level in society, maybe not at the city level and everywhere else. But if you're on a building site in East London, it most certainly had an impact. It certainly, I mean, it certainly had an impact in that way. But then also, if you look at the treasury models of the UK economy, it was able to uplift growth and create a situation where money was flowing through the economy in a way that it wouldn't um, have that immigration not happened. So it's a very difficult situation because, yes, you're right, if you were working on a building site or a plumber, you, you probably felt that your wages had been suppressed. But having said that, there was also the case for how the economy thrived and prospered. We also found that, you know, it wasn't simply, you know, people were racist at all about it. I remember one of the most profound moments of the campaign was when the Prime Minister went to um, Caterpillar, which is a kind of mechanical diggers factory. And there was an audience of about 1,500 people, and a man stood up and said, look, you know, my daughter is in a class where half of the pupils speak English as a foreign language. Now, I don't resent those people, but I do worry that my daughter is not getting the focus and attention because of that. Now, that's a legitimate concern, and it's Mm. a difficult thing to deal with if you're a government saying, yes, but we need these people for our economy. Um, The reality is, when I was speaking to a lot of Labour MPs, is, you know, particularly in the north, that they would find on the doorstep people bringing up immigration and saying it was a huge problem. And they were saying, you are aware that in this constituency, 98.5% of people are, you know, white people born here and that there isn't a huge impact on immigration. And they were surprised the extent to which people thought immigration was a real problem in their area when it actually was not a huge issue. 
Many see David Cameron as the, the most disastrous prime minister since Lord North. Now, you argue in your book that he was the conservative leader who was almost destined by history to be the one to call a referendum since a referendum was going to have to be called by some uh, Tory leader, uh, in your view. Would, was there any way in which he could have avoided that fate, in your opinion? A lot of people who are Remainers sort of take out their anger and say, you know, David Cameron just was was playing with fire and he shouldn't have done it. I think they're just ignoring the political reality of the situation. Um, Britain had been facing the demands for this for many, many years. Um, It wasn't just an issue in the Conservative Party, though it was a serious issue in the Conservative Party. You had scores of MPs rebelling on anything and everything to do with Europe. And they were also finding other legislation that was only tangentially related and trying to amend it in such a way that they could bring Europe up again and have another vote on it. But also you had the rise of UKIP, a party that was solely formed in order to have a referendum and to win it. And they not only did well in the 2014 um, European elections in the UK, they actually won them. Then you had the kind of democratic deficit, which was you needed to have been 60 to have voted to be in the EU in this country, and demands from the popular press and campaigning going on. So the idea that it was sustainable to not have a referendum it just doesn't add up. And people say, well, you know, David Cameron could have stood, stood firm. Well, he would have been replaced in those circumstances. And the only person who would have been elected is someone who was prepared to say there will be a referendum. So I just think there's a lot of naivety about that. And I think that also the sheer fact that Leave won reveals that there was a demand and appetite and concern around these things. Thanks to Dennis Staunton, Mark Hennessy and Craig Oliver and to our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.